This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapters 25 and 26. Chapter 25 this is where I was prisoner for three days, he murmured to me. It was on the occasion of our visit to the Rajah, while we were making our way slowly through a kind of awestruck riot of dependence across Tunku Alang's courtyard. Filthy place, isn't it? And I couldn't get anything to eat, either, unless I made a row about it, and then it was only a small plate of rice and a fried fish not much bigger than a stickleback. Confound them! Jove! I've been hungry prowling inside this stinking enclosure with some of these vagabonds shoving their mugs right under my nose. I'd given up that famous revolver of yours at the first demand, glad to get rid of the bally thing. Look like a fool walking about with an empty shooting iron in my hand. At that moment we came into the presence, and he became unflinchingly grave and complimentary with his late captor. Oh! magnificent. I want to laugh when I think of it. But I was impressed, too. The old disreputable Tunku Alang could not help showing his fear. He was no hero, for all the tales of his hot youth he was fond of telling. And at the same time there was a wistful confidence in his manner towards his late prisoner. Note, even where he would be most hated, he was still trusted." Jim, as far as I could follow the conversation, was improving the occasion by the delivery of a lecture. Some poor villagers had been waylaid and robbed while on their way to Doryman's house, with a few pieces of gum or beeswax which they wished to exchange for rice. "'It was Doryman who was a thief!' burst out the Rajah. A shaking fury seemed to enter that old frail body." He writhed weirdly on his mat, gesticulating with his hands and feet, tossing the tangled strips of his mop, an impotent incarnation of rage. There were staring eyes and dropping jaws all round us. Jim began to speak, resolutely, coolly, and for some time he enlarged upon the text that no man should be prevented from getting his food and his children's food honestly. The other sat like a tailor at his board, one palm on each knee, his head low, and fixing Jim through the grey hair that fell over his very eyes. When Jim had done, there was a great stillness. Nobody seemed to breathe, even. No one made a sound till the old Rajah sighed faintly, and looking up, with a toss of his head, said quickly, "'You hear, my people. No more of these little games.' This decree was received in profound silence. A rather heavy man, evidently in a position of confidence, with intelligent eyes, a bony, broad, very dark face, and a cheerily officious manner, I learned later on he was the executioner, presented to us two cups of coffee on a brass tray, which he took from the hands of an inferior attendant. "'You needn't drink,' muttered Jim very rapidly. I didn't perceive the meaning at first, and only looked at him. He took a good sip and sat composedly holding the saucer in his left hand. In a moment I felt excessively annoyed. "'Why the devil,' I whispered, smiling at him amiably, "'do you expose me to such a stupid risk?' 
I drank, of course. There was nothing for it, while he gave no sign, and almost immediately afterward we took our leave. While we were going down to the courtyard to our boat, escorted by the intelligent and cheery executioner, Jim said he was very sorry. It was the barest chance, of course. Personally, he thought nothing of poison, the remotest chance. He was, he assured me, considered to be infinitely more useful than dangerous, and so— but the Rajah is afraid of you abominably. Anybody can see that, I argued, with, I own, a certain peevishness, and all the time watching anxiously for the first twist of some sort of ghastly colic. I was awfully disgusted. If I am to do any good here and preserve my position, he said, taking his seat by my side in the boat, I must stand the risk. I take it once every month at least." Many people trust me to do that, for them. Afraid of me? That's just it. Most likely he is afraid of me, because I am not afraid of his coffee. Then, showing me a place on the north front of the stockade where the pointed tops of several stakes were broken, this is where I leapt over on my third day in Patizan. They haven't put up new stakes yet there. Good leap, eh? A moment later we passed the mouth of a muddy creek. This is my second leap. I had a bit of a run and took this one flying, but fell short. Thought I would leave my skin there. Lost my shoes struggling. And all the time I was thinking to myself how beastly it would be to get a jab with a bally long spear while sticking in the mud like this. I remember how sick I felt wriggling in that slime. I mean really sick, as if I'd bitten something rotten. That's how it was, and the opportunity ran by his side, leaped over the gap, floundered in the mud, still veiled. The unexpectedness of his coming was the only thing, you understand, that saved him from being at once dispatched with chrises and flung into the river. They had him, but it was like getting hold of an apparition, a, a wraith, a portent. What did it mean? What to do with it? Was it too late to conciliate him? Hadn't he better be killed without more delay? But what would happen then? Wretched old Alang went nearly mad with apprehension, and through the difficulty of making up his mind. Several times the council was broken up, and the advisers made a break, helter-skelter for the door, and out on to the veranda. One, it is said, even jumped down to the ground, fifteen feet, I should judge, and broke his leg. The royal governor of Patizan had bizarre mannerisms, and one of them was to introduce boastful rhapsodies into every arduous discussion, when, getting gradually excited, he would end by flying off his perch with a criss in his hand. But, barring such interruptions, the deliberations upon Jim's fate went on night and day. Meanwhile he wandered about the courtyard, shunned by some, glared at by others, but watched by all and practically at the mercy of the first casual ragamuffin with a chopper in there. He took possession of a small tumble-down shed to sleep in. The effluvia of filth and rotten matter incommoded him greatly. It seems he had not lost his appetite, though, because, he told me, he had been hungry all the blessed time. Now and again some fussy ass, deputed from the council-room, would come out running to him, and in honeyed tones would administer amazing interrogatories. 
Were the Dutch coming to take the country? Would the white man like to go back down the river? What was the object of coming to such a miserable country? The Rajah wanted to know whether the white man could repair a watch. They actually did bring out to him a nickel clock of New England make, and out of sheer unbearable boredom he busied himself in trying to get the alarm to work. It was apparently, when thus occupied in his shed, that the true perception of his extreme peril dawned upon him. He dropped the thing, he says, like a hot potato, and walked out hastily without the slightest idea of what he would or indeed could do. He only knew that the position was intolerable. He strolled aimlessly beyond a sort of ramshackle little granary on posts, and his eyes fell upon the broken stakes of the palisade. And then, he says, at once, without any mental process, as it were, without any stir of emotion, he set about his escape, as if executing a plan matured for a month. He walked off carelessly to give himself a good run, and when he faced about there was some dignitary, with two spearmen in attendance, close at his elbow and ready with a question. He started off from under their very nose, went over like a bird, and landed on the other side with a fall that jarred all his bones and seemed to split his head. He picked himself up instantly. He never thought of anything at the time. All he could remember, he said, was a great yell. The first houses of Patizan were before him, four hundred yards away. He saw the creek, and, as it were, mechanically put on more pace. The earth seemed fairly to fly backwards under his feet. He took off from the last dry spot, felt himself flying through the air, felt himself without any shock planted upright in an extremely soft and sticky mud-bank. It was only when he tried to move his legs, and found he couldn't, that in his own words he came to himself. He began to think of the Bali long spears. As a matter of fact, considering that the people inside the stockade had to run to the gate, then get down to the landing-place, get into boats, and pull round a point of land, he had more advance than he imagined. Besides, it being low water, the creek was without water. You couldn't call it dry. Then, practically, he was safe for a time from anything but a very long shot, perhaps. The high, firm ground was about six feet in front of him. "'I thought I would have to die there all the same,' he said. He reached and grabbed desperately with his hands, and only succeeded in gathering a horrible, cold, shiny heap of slime against his breast, up to his very chin. It seemed to him that he was burying himself alive. And then he struck out madly, scattering the mud with his fists. It fell on his head, on his face, over his eyes, into his mouth. He told me that he remembered suddenly the courtyard, as you remember a place where you had been very happy years ago. He longed, so he said, to be back there again, mending the clock. Mending the clock, that was the idea. He made efforts, tremendous, sobbing, gasping efforts, efforts that seemed to burst his eyeballs in their sockets and make him blind, and culminating into one mighty, supreme effort in the darkness to crack the earth asunder, to throw it off his limbs. And he felt himself creeping feebly up the bank. He lay full length on the firm ground, and saw the light, the sky. Then, as a sort of happy thought, the notion came to him that he would go to sleep. 
He will have it that he did actually go to sleep, that he slept, perhaps for a minute, perhaps for twenty seconds, or only for one second. But he recollects distinctly the violent, convulsive start of awakening. He remained lying still for a while, and then he arose, muddy from head to foot, and stood there, thinking he was alone of his kind for hundreds of miles, alone with no help, no sympathy, no pity to expect from anyone, like a hunted animal. The first houses were not more than twenty yards from him, and it was the desperate screaming of a frightened woman trying to carry off a child that started him again. He pelted straight on in his socks, be plastered with filth out of all semblance to a human being. He traversed more than half the length of the settlement. The nimbler women fled right and left, the slower men just dropped whatever they had in their hands, and remained petrified with dropping jaws. He was a flying terror. He says he noticed the little children trying to run for life, falling on their little stomachs and kicking. He swerved between two houses up a slope, clambered in desperation over a barricade of felled trees there wasn't a week without some fight in Patazan at that time, burst through a fence into a maze-patch where a scared boy flung a stick at him, blundered upon a path, and ran all at once into the arms of several startled men. He had just breath enough to gasp out, Doramin! Doramin! He remembers being half-carried, half-rushed to the top of the slope, and in a vast enclosure with palms and fruit-trees, being run up to a large man sitting massively in a chair in the midst of the greatest possible commotion and excitement. He fumbled in mud and clothes to produce the ring, and, finding himself suddenly on his back, wondered who had knocked him down. They had simply let him go, don't you know, but he couldn't stand. At the foot of the slope random shots were fired, and above the roofs of the settlement there rose a dull roar of amazement. But he was safe. Doramin's people were barricading the gate and pouring water down his throat. Doramin's old wife, full of business and commiseration, was issuing shrill orders to her girls. "'The old woman,' he said softly, "'made it to do over me as if I'd been her own son.' They put me into an immense bed, her state bed, and she ran in and out, wiping her eyes to give me pats on the back. I must have been a pitiful object. I just lay there like a log, for I don't know how long. He seemed to have a great liking for Dorimin's old wife. She, on her side, had taken a motherly fancy to him. She had a round, nut-brown, soft face, all fine wrinkles, large bright red lips, she chewed beetle assiduously, and screwed up winking benevolent eyes. She was constantly in movement, scolding busily and ordering unceasingly a troop of young women with clear brown faces and big grave eyes, her daughters, her servants, her slave girls. You know how it is in these households, it's generally impossible to tell the difference. She was very spare, and even her ample outer garment, fastened in front with jewelled clasps, had somehow a skimpy effect. Her dark bare feet were thrust into yellow straw slippers of Chinese make. I have seen her myself flitting about with her extremely thick, long grey hair falling about her shoulders. She uttered homely, shrewd sayings, was of noble birth, and was eccentric and arbitrary. 
In the afternoon she would sit in a very roomy armchair, opposite her husband, and gazing steadily through a wide opening in the wall, which gave an extensive view of the settlement and the river. She invariably tucked up her feet under her, but old Doramin sat squarely, sat imposingly as a mountain sits on a plain. He was only of the Nakoda, or merchant class, but the respect shown to him and the dignity of his bearing were very striking. He was the chief of the second power in Patizan. The immigrants from Celebes, about sixty families that, with dependents and so on, could muster some two hundred men wearing the chris, had elected him years ago for their head. The men of that race are intelligent, enterprising, revengeful, but with a more frank courage than the other Malays, and restless under oppression. They formed the party opposed to the Rajah. Of course the quarrels were for trade. This was the primary cause of faction fights, of the sudden outbreaks that would fill this or that part of the settlement with smoke, flame, the noise of shots and shrieks. Villages were burnt, men were dragged into the Rajah's stockade to be killed or tortured for the crime of trading with anybody else but himself. Only a day or two before Jim's arrival, several heads of households in the very fishing village that was afterwards taken under his especial protection, had been driven over the cliffs by a party of the Rajah's spearmen, on suspicion of having been collecting edible birds' nests for a Celebes trader. Rajah Alang pretended to be the only trader in his country, and the penalty for the breach of the monopoly was death, but his idea of trading was indistinguishable from the commonest forms of robbery. His cruelty and rapacity had no other bounds than his cowardice, and he was afraid of the organized power of the Celebes men. Only till Jim came he was not afraid enough to keep quiet. He struck at them through his subjects, and thought himself pathetically in the right. The situation was complicated by a wandering stranger, an Arab half-breed, who, I believe, on purely religious grounds, had incited the tribes in the interior, the bush-folk, as Jim himself called them, to rise, and had established himself in a fortified camp on the summit of one of the twin hills. He hung over the town of Patizan like a hawk over a poultry-yard, but he devastated the open country. Whole villages, deserted, rotted on their blackened post over the banks of clear streams, dropping piecemeal into the water the grass of their walls, the leaves of their roofs, with a curious effect of natural decay, as if they had been a form of vegetation stricken by a blight at its very root. The two parties in Patizan were not sure which one this partisan most desired to plunder. The Rajah intrigued with him feebly. Some of the Bugis settlers, weary with endless insecurity, were half inclined to call him in. The younger spirits amongst them, chafing, advised to get Sharif Ali with his wild men and drive the Rajah along out of the country. Doramin restrained them with difficulty. He was growing old, and, though his influence had not diminished, the situation was getting beyond him. This was the state of affairs when Jim, bolting from the Rajah's stockade, appeared before the chief of the Bugis, produced the ring, and was received, in a manner of speaking, into the heart of the community. Chapter 26 Doramin was one of the most remarkable men of his race I had ever seen. His bulk for a melee was immense, 
but he did not look merely fat. He looked imposing, monumental. This motionless body, clad in rich stuffs, coloured silks, gold embroideries, this huge head enfolded in a red and gold head kerchief, the flat, big, round face, wrinkled, furrowed, with two semicircular heavy folds starting on each side of wide, fierce nostrils, and enclosing a thick-lipped mouth, the throat like a bull, the vast corrugated brow overhanging the staring, proud eyes, made a whole that once seen can never be forgotten. His impassive repose, he seldom stirred a limb when once he sat down, was like a display of dignity. He was never known to raise his voice. It was a hoarse and powerful murmur, slightly veiled as if heard from a distance. When he walked, two short, sturdy young fellows, naked to the waist, in white sarongs and with black skull-caps on the backs of their heads, sustained his elbows. They would ease him down and stand behind his chair till he wanted to rise when he would turn his head slowly, as if with difficulty, to the right and to the left, then they would catch him under his armpits and help him up. For all that, there was nothing of a cripple about him. On the contrary, all his ponderous movements were like manifestations of a mighty, deliberate force. It was generally believed he consulted with his wife as to public affairs, but nobody, as far as I know, had ever heard them exchange a single word. When they sat in state by the wide opening, it was in silence. They could see below them, in the declining light, the vast expanse of the forest country, a dark sleeping sea of sombre green undulating as far as the violet and purple range of the mountains, the shining sinuosity of the river like an immense letter S of beaten silver, the brown ribbon of houses following the sweep of both banks, overtopped by the twin hills uprising above the nearer treetops. They were wonderfully contrasted. She, light, delicate, spare, quick, a little witch-like, with a touch of motherly fussiness in her repose. He, facing her, immense and heavy, like a figure of a man roughly fashioned of stone, with something magnanimous and ruthless in his immobility. The son of these old people was a most distinguished youth. They had him late in life. Perhaps he was not really so young as he looked. Four or five-and-twenty is not so young when a man is already father of a family at eighteen. When he entered the large room, lined and carpeted with fine mats, and with a high ceiling of white sheeting, where the couple sat in state surrounded by a most deferential retinue, he would make his way straight to Doramin to kiss his hand, which the other abandoned to him majestically, and then would step across to stand by his mother's chair. I suppose I may say they idolized him, but I never caught them giving him an overt glance. Those, it is true, were public functions. The room was generally thronged. The solemn formality of greetings and leave-takings, the profound respect expressed in gestures on the faces, in the low whispers, is simply indescribable. "'It's well worth seeing,' Jim had assured me, while we were crossing the river on our way back. "'They are like people in a book, aren't they?' he said triumphantly. "'And Dane Warris, their son, is the best friend, barring you, I've ever had. What Mr. Stein would call a good war comrade.' I was in luck. 
Jove, I was in luck when I tumbled amongst them at my last gasp. He meditated with bowed head, then, rousing himself, he added, Of course I didn't go to sleep over it, but... He paused again. It seemed to come to me, he murmured. All at once I saw what I had to do. There was no doubt that it had come to him, and it had come to him through war, too, as is natural since this power that came to him was the power to make peace. It is in this sense alone that might so often is right. You must not think he had seen his way at once. When he arrived, the Bugis community was in a most critical position. They were all afraid, he said to me, each man afraid for himself, while I could see as plain as possible that they must do something at once, if they did not want to go under one after another, what between the Rajah and that vagabond Sharif. But to see that was nothing. When he got his idea, he had to drive it into reluctant minds, through the bulwarks of fear, of selfishness. He drove it in at last. And that was nothing. He had to devise the means. He devised them, an audacious plan and his task was only half done. He had to inspire with his own confidence a lot of people who had hidden and absurd reasons to hang back. He had to conciliate imbecile jealousies, and argue away all sorts of senseless mistrusts. Without the weight of Doramine's authority, and his son's fiery enthusiasm, he would have failed. Dane Waris, the distinguished youth, was the first to believe in him, Theirs was one of those strange, profound, rare friendships between brown and white in which the very difference of race seems to draw two human beings closer by some mystic element of sympathy. Of Dane Waris, his own people said with pride that he knew how to fight like a white man. This was true. He had that sort of courage. The courage in the open, I may say. But he had also a European mind— you meet them sometimes like that, and are surprised to discover unexpectedly a familiar turn of thought, an unobscured vision, a tenacity of purpose, a touch of altruism. Of small stature, but admirably well proportioned, Dane Maurice had a proud carriage, a polished, easy bearing, a temperament like a clear flame. His dusky face, with big black eyes, was in action expressive, and in repose thoughtful. He was of a silent disposition, a firm glance, an ironic smile, a courteous deliberation of manner seemed to hint at great reserves of intelligence and power. Such beings, open to the western eye, so often concerned with mere surfaces, the hidden possibilities of races and lands over which hangs the mystery of unrecorded ages. He not only trusted Jim, he understood him, I firmly believe. I speak of him because he had captivated me. His, if I may say so, his caustic placidity, and at the same time his intelligent sympathy with Jim's aspirations, appealed to me. I seemed to behold the very origin of friendship. If Jim took the lead, the other had captivated his leader. In fact, Jim, the leader, was a captive in every sense— the land, the people, the friendship, the love were like the jealous guardians of his body. Every day added a link to the fetters of that strange freedom. I felt convinced of it, as from day to day I learned more of the story. The story! Hadn't I heard the story? I've heard it on the march, in camp, 
He made me scour the country after invisible game. I've listened to a good part of it on one of the twin summits after climbing the last hundred feet or so on my hands and knees. Our escort, we had volunteer followers from village to village, had camped meantime on a bit of level ground halfway up the slope, and in the still breathless evening the smell of wood smoke reached our nostrils from below with the penetrating delicacy of some choice scent. Voices also ascended, wonderful in their distinct and immaterial clearness. Jim sat on the trunk of a felled tree, and, pulling out his pipe, began to smoke. A new growth of grass and bushes was springing up. There were traces of an earthwork under a mass of thorny twigs. "'It all started from here,' he said, after a long and meditative silence. On the other hill, two hundred yards across a sombre precipice, I saw a line of high blackened stakes, showing here and there ruinously the remnants of Sherif Ali's impregnable camp. But it had been taken, though. That had been his idea. He had mounted Doramin's old ordnance on the top of that hill, two rusty iron seven-pounders, a lot of small brass cannon, currency cannon. But if the brass guns represent wealth, they can also, when crammed recklessly to the muzzle, send a solid shot to some little distance. The thing was to get them up there. He showed me where he had fastened the cables, explained how he had improvised a rude capstan out of a hollowed log turning upon a pointed stake, indicated with the bowl of his pipe the outline of the earthwork. The last hundred feet of the ascent had been the most difficult. He had made himself responsible for success on his own head. He had induced the war-party to work hard all night. Big fires lighted at intervals blazed all down the slope. But up here, he explained, the hoisting-gang had to fly around in the dark. From the top he saw men moving on the hillside like ants at work. He himself, on that night, had kept rushing down and climbing up like a squirrel, directing, encouraging, watching all along the line. Old Doramin had himself carried up the hill in his armchair. They put him down on the level place upon the slope, and he sat there in the light of one of the big fires. "'Amazing old chap, real old chieftain,' said Jim, with his little fierce eyes, a pair of immense flintlock pistols on his knees. Magnificent things, ebony, silver-mounted, with beautiful locks, and caliber like an old blunderbuss.' A present from Stein, it seems, in exchange for that ring, you know. Used to belong to good old MacNeil. God only knows how he came by them. There he sat, moving neither hand nor foot, a flame of dry brushwood behind him, and lots of people rushing about, shouting and pulling round him. The most solemn, imposing old chap you can imagine. He wouldn't have had much chance if Sharif Ali had let his infernal crew loose at us and stampeded up my lot, eh? Anyhow, he had come up there to die if anything went wrong. No mistake. Jove, it thrilled me to see him there, like a rock. But the Sharif must have thought us mad, and never troubled to come up to see how we got on. Nobody believed it could be done. Why, I think the very chaps who pulled and shoved and sweated over it did not believe it could be done. Upon my word, I don't think they did. He stood erect, the smouldering briarwood in his clutch, with a smile on his lips and a sparkle in his boyish eyes. I sat on the stump of a tree at his feet, and below us stretched the land, 
the great expanse of the forest, sombre under the sunshine, rolling like a sea, with glints of winding rivers, the grey spots of villages, and here and there a clearing, like an islet of light amongst the dark waves of continuous treetops. A brooding gloom lay over this vast and monotonous landscape. The light fell on it as if into an abyss. The land devoured the sunshine. Only far off, along the coast, the empty ocean, smooth and polished within the faint haze, seemed to rise up to the sky in a wall of steel. And there I was with him, high in the sunshine on the top of that historic hill of his. He dominated the forest, the secular gloom, the old mankind. He was like a figure set up on a pedestal to represent in his persistent youth the power and perhaps the virtues of races that never grow old, that have emerged from the gloom. I don't know why he should always have appeared to me symbolic. Perhaps this is the real cause of my interest in his fate. I don't know whether it was exactly fair to him to remember the incident which had given a new direction to his life, but at that moment I remembered very distinctly. It was like a shadow in the light. End of chapters 25 and 26